Hello, Bookstew viewers and listeners. My happiest days on Bookstew are the programs when I have a returning author, because it means that they like me enough to come back a second time, and because they're still productive in writing. So today's guest, Peter Borgio, was on the show last summer. He visits the area um, when he's uh, up from New York. And the first time was with an amazing book of dog obituaries, which I bet a lot of you ran out and ordered on Amazon after you watched the show, or at least I hope you did. But Peter in real life is not uh, an obituarist for dogs. He's really was a Broadway general manager. And um, I didn't know what a Broadway general manager was. I just wanted him to come back on the show. So Peter was good enough to provide me with a copy of his book. And today we're going to talk about it. And we're going to talk about what exactly is a Broadway general manager. Peter, welcome. I'm so happy to see you again. Thank you, Eileen. It's a thrill to be back. Thank and uh, this book is, in a way, it's very technical because I think the aim of the book was to provide um, information for anybody who might consider going into this role. Um, I was saying to you before the show started that when I go to a show on Broadway or off-Broadway or anywhere, I buy my ticket, I complain about how much it costs, <laughs> I get in my seat, I either love it or hate it, um, I go home, I read other reviews, and that's the end of it. I never think about what goes into making a Broadway show, either a play or a musical. So how did you get into such a critical role, Peter? Well, it was um, a bit of an evolution. I started out uh, thinking that I wanted to be an actor. And I, I have a theory that when one is young or naive and they go to the theater, uh, of course, the first thing you see are the actors on stage. And if you're very naive, you may not even think that someone has written the words they're saying. You just see them on stage and they're getting laughter and they're getting applause. So. Uh, I thought I wanted to be an actor, and I pursued that uh, after college in New York for a number of years. And then I, I found an original script that had a very exciting role in it that I wanted to play. And I uh, did some research and realized that the best way to make sure that this play got produced, even on a very simple level, and that I would be cast in the role I wanted was to produce it myself. Ah. So. Uh, I did that uh, as a off-Broadway off showcase. This wasn't a Broadway production. But you knew somehow, how did you know what would be involved in even producing a show? Well, uh, first of all, I hired a general manager. I hired a publicist. Um, all I knew at that point was that uh, a producer has to choose the piece and raise the money. Uh, but I soon was advised that I needed a general manager. I wasn't quite sure what they did. But I, I did get this production up and start in it. And to my total surprise, because my goal was just to act in it, when all the dust had settled at the end, uh, it was very clear to me that I was much, it was a much better fit for me to be sort of on the producing end than the performing end. Uh, I like to say that uh, I had been a fish 
and not realized it and someone finally put me in a bowl of water and I went like, oh, I'm a fish. So it was a kind of an aha moment for me. So um, that probably doesn't happen very frequently to actors, right? I mean, I, most actors I've heard about, read about, seem to just keep bashing their heads until something breaks or they just give up. Yeah, it's so interesting. People used to say to me, well, how long are you going to try this? And, and I would say, oh, you know, I don't know. I can't just arbitrarily say I'm going to pursue acting for two years and I, I think I'll know when it's time. But in my mind, I kept thinking that I was going to get a positive sign that this was the right path for me, it, such as I was going to get a certain role. And in point of fact, I, <laughs> I realized one day that I'd actually been getting a negative sign for quite some time, Aww. but hadn't recognized it because Aww. I was looking for a positive sign and I wasn't getting the role. Uh, but when I produced this show in this little showcase so that I could act in it, all those other aspects came very naturally to me. And, and so at the end, and it was a complete surprise, I said, uh, you know what, I, th I think this is, you know, I love the theater, I would like to stay part of it, but I, I think there's a better niche for me. Well, that's, that's a very fortunate realization that you had because, I mean, you've certainly had a wonderful career. I'm just going to take a minute and mention some of your credits. There's so many that I have to read them. I wasn't <laughs> able to memorize them. So there was uh, Love Letters starring Mia Farrow, Brian Dennehy, Carol Burnett, Alan Alda, and Candace Bergen. There was a version of The Trip to Bountiful with Cicely Tyson and Vanessa Williams. There was Stick Fly, which I saw in Boston and I loved with Dulé Hill. Time Stands Still with Laura Linney, Brian Darcy James, Eric Bogosian, and Christina Ritchie. American Buffalo, starring John Leguizamo. A Moon for the Misbegotten with um, Kevin Spacey. The Blonde and the Thunderbird, starring Suzanne Somers. Who remembers Suzanne Somers? A revival of Larry Gilbart's Sly Fox, starring Richard Dreyfuss and Eric Stoltz, and Voices in the Dark, starring Judith Ivey. So that's just your Broadway credits, not even your off-Broadway credits. Um, so let's talk about th this role and other roles, because um, I'm going to tell uh, my audience a, a silly story that when I had contacted you regarding coming on the show, I think either the subject line of my of my email I put in there somewhere, stage manager, and ooh, did you uh, <laughs> send me back a hot response? I'm not a stage manager; I'm a general manager. And after I finished reading the book, I understood <laughs> why that would make you mad, because I think people a stage manager is something that people could kind of okay. I understand there's actors running around; someone has to manage them on the stage. But the concept of a general manager would never have occurred to me. So let's talk about three different roles, um, actually four. So there's your role as a general manager, then there's a company manager, then there's a production stage manager, and then there's a stage manager. So how do the other three that aren't general manager, um, how do you, how do, you uh, do those jobs and what kind of background do you have? Sure. Well, why don't I start by saying what a general manager is. Um, a general manager is the top 
business and financial advisor to a producer. So in a normal state of affairs, the first person a producer hires is an attorney, and the attorney helps the producer get the rights to a property. Uh, and that's a very complicated, extensive contract called an option agreement. A producer can't do anything until they legally have obtained the rights to uh, exclusively try to develop a property into a play. Or maybe to get uh, the rights to have a revival of, of it, right? Yes, it could be a revival, or if it's, if it's a new play, then it would be to produce it for the first time. But as, as soon as that's done, the second that option agreement, the ink has dried, um, uh, a producer rushes out to hire a general manager because their very next question is, what's it going to cost? How much money do I have to raise? And the, and the first thing a general manager does is budget a production based on the script, based on conversations with the producer. So the producer knows, okay, this play is going to cost me four and a half million dollars to produce on Broadway. And All right, I'm going to stop you there because there was something in your book that um, I had a question about. So in as far as budgeting goes, you mentioned that um, things that must be considered as far as budgeting goes are locations, um, how many settings, how many, you know, how many different sets there are going to have to be. And you also mentioned whether it was a period piece or a modern piece. And also, most curious to me, age, range, and ethnicity of the actors. How, so, I mean... Th those all impact different budget line items. So, for example, um, a big part of a budget is the physical production. And that involves sets, costumes, etc. So, in in trying to budget a play, let's say a new play that's never been done before, uh, one of the considerations are how many sets does it have? Is it a naturalistic drama where uh, it all takes place in someone's kitchen and that's the only set? Is it uh, a play that has lots of different scenes over many years? And and so that's going to impact the scenery. Uh, period versus modern is definitely going to impact your costume line. Uh, if it's modern and you're lucky, you can largely, except if you have a big star, buy clothes off the rack and then uh, tailor them to fit really well. If it's a period piece, everything's going to have to be handmade, not only a dress, but shoes and gloves and hats. and So that can be a big consideration. In terms of uh, the characters in the play, what is the age range, what's the ethnicity, that's going to impact your budgeting for understudies. Oh, Do you, okay. you, need, you, you may need a young woman, you may need an older woman, you may need a young man, you may need an older man. If it's specifically written in or, or if, the, if the original casting is such that um, uh, a character is not Caucasian, then you normally want an understudy that will carry through that same concept. So you, you learn over time to read a script uh, very, very specifically and analytically. Um, I'll tell you a funny example. I worked on a revival of American Buffalo, which you mentioned. And as I was reading the script, several times the characters make a comment about, they sort of look out the window of this junk shop and say like, oh, it looks like rain, looks like rain. 
and I'm reading it and thinking, mm, special effects, I need to include a line for special effects. There's going to be rain at some point. <laughs> so indeed there was rain. Luckily, I had anticipated it, so there was a line item in the budget to hire someone who makes rain happen. A rainmaker. A rainmaker. <laughs> but, and this cracked me up, um, it turned out the scene where it rained was at night and the people are meeting secretly in the junk shop and they don't want anyone to know, so they draw the curtains. <laughs> so in fact, you could have had a sound effect going pitter-patter, 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 and you could have had someone right off stage with a spray bottle <laughs> spraying someone who enters. You never actually saw the rain that we went to great expense to have actually falling. So when, so <laughs> when you figured that out, did the rainmaker go away and the spray bottle came out? No, by then, you know, we'd, we'd paid a guy to design it and it was, it was, really, budgeted, it was so. really raining on the other side of the curtains that no <laughs> one could see. That's a great story. Okay, yeah. that's, that's very helpful to understand that. Okay, so... So to go back, the general manager really oversees everything business and financial, budgets, contracts, payroll, bills, royalties. He's at the top. Directly under him, kind of his lieutenant, is a company manager, one of the positions you mentioned. And that person reads all the contracts. The general manager has done all the broad strokes and set things up. And then the company manager comes on shortly before rehearsals, reads all the contracts, absorbs that information, and then executes those things, sets up the payroll, knows that this person is getting this amount of money for the first six weeks and then gets a bump and has a payroll ledger and makes a note in the week where one actor's salary goes up. And so the company manager is sort of the lieutenant who reports faithfully to the general manager who's kind of a general. But the general manager has to have all that knowledge as well, but maybe the lieutenant kind of is more responsible for the day-to-day -day of carrying that out because exactly. the general manager has so much else to do. Exactly, and the general manager usually has set the parameters. The company manager works for him, works in his office, and executes them on a daily basis. Uh, a stage manager is really responsible for the running of the production in the theater, the operation of the actual show in the theater, which, um, you may or may not know, uh, involves the calling of many cues. There are lighting cues that have been set, there are sound cues. Um, the stage manager will make sure the show starts and, and operates. And the top, the top stage manager is called a production stage manager. Uh -huh. And then his assistants are either called an assistant stage manager or sometimes just plain stage manager. Then there's also a production manager who's a on the technical side and they coordinate uh, the building of the set and the oh. rental of the lights. So there are, and then the theater has a house manager who's responsible for the theater and the ushers and the box office and the air conditioning and patron complaints. So there are a lot of different managers and part of my beef and why I may have overreacted <laughs> to your innocent, well-meaning email <laughs> is that, um, the term general manager is very opaque. It doesn't really tell you what the person does. And over the decades that I've been in the theater, 
my closest friends still would introduce me at a party as, oh, this is my friend Peter, he's a stage manager. Mm. No, no. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, he's a production manager. No, no, no. <laughs> Which is why when I wrote this book, I decided to call it Broadway <laughs> General Manager, and then the as a little backup, yep. I gave it a subtitle, Demystifying the Most Important and Least Understood Role in Show Business. So um, producers um, must be so, it's so important to a producer to have the right general manager. I mean, you're really like. It's a very codependent relationship. So I was going to bring up something else uh, that, <laughs> that I saw in the book that I re really loved. So at the beginning of the book, when you're talking about your evolution to becoming a general manager, you said, well, you know, there was a company manager job and you didn't really want to be at the theater eight times a week for all those shows. You were newly married, you had a son. And so, no, that wasn't it. And then later on in the book on page 215, you say, as general manager, you're on call 24-7. So I'm thinking like, okay, you don't want to be there for eight performances, but your whole life is, you know, is you have to be available all the time. Yeah, you have to, psychologically, you have to be available. A company manager, and, and I performed that role for many years, um, and that's the, the standard stepping stone to becoming general manager is being a company manager. And I, I did that for many years and, and worked on many shows. And I, I, learned a, I learned a lot. But a company manager physically has to be at the theater every performance eight times a week just to make sure the show gets started, to check in with the company, to review the box office statement. Um, so that means you're at the theater, you know, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. You're there twice on Saturday. You're also there the matinee on Wednesday. Um, it's, it's more limiting. And I also wanted to have a little bit more responsibility and more say. Um, so I, at a certain point, I wanted to move on from being a company manager and, and take on the role of a general manager. So, you know, being available 24-7 still meant that I'm sure you had times where if everything was running smoothly, you know, you, you didn't have to, you, like you didn't have your phone to your ear the whole time. I, exactly, exactly. Okay. Um, I did have, um, I had so many questions uh, in this, in this, from this book. Okay, so there was one part where you mentioned what 9-11, the impact of 9-11 on a contract. So before 9-11, when I, I'm not going to even say it, I'm going to let you say it because it's a French phrase and I don't know, I've never oh, said that. Force majeure? Force majeure, okay. You know how you never said a phrase out loud, then you have to say, you say it all wrong. So <laughs> force majeure, that sounds good. So force majeure had, is like acts of God, right? Like yeah, and everything sounds better in French. <laughs> Absolutely. So in this case, you did put um, kind of a, a note in that after 9-11, force majeure needed to include acts of terrorism. Yeah, I think the entire insurance industry uh, had to adjust. I mean, not since Pearl Harbor had America ever been subject to such a 
you know, massive attack. It was and kind in of New like, York, where all the theaters are, yeah. too. And I'm, I'm sure that there were also have been massive changes after COVID. That was what I was going to ask you. Um, were you, you, were you stage, uh, were you, not stage, were you general managing <laughs> any, any shows during COVID? No, no, thank goodness um, I wasn't. It must have been horrible. And I did read that some shows, their insurance brokers had written their contracts so that uh, they were covered with COVID, but others hadn't, so. And it wasn't just like COVID once, it was this lead got COVID, then two more leads got COVID, then you had to shut the whole thing down, then you brought it up back up again, and this guy got COVID. I mean, it, it had to be the most challenging. Were you kind of happy you weren't general yeah, managing I, at that I, point? I, I was grateful that I was not active at that point. And I know the real, the real saviors of the industry were all the understudies in the swings who stepped in to fill gaps. But there would inevitably come a point that too many people were sick. And of course, it's not only actors, but the stagehands who, you know, a, a big show, a musical, almost definitely has automated computerized scenery and you need sure. very, very specialized stagehands to mm. make that work. Scenery flies in and out and platforms come in from the sides. So invariably, despite the most heroic of efforts, enough people got sick that a production couldn't piece together a performance. I, I saw, saw or read something about, I can't remember who the director was, but at one point, one of the directors had to step in and act on the stage, which he hadn't done for like <laughs> a million years, because it was, it, it, you know, the tickets had been sold, it was too late to cancel, because also, you know, you, you test positive two minutes before you go on, I'm sure they're testing all the time, and the director of the play actually came in and took on a role, which he said was the most terrifying <laughs> moment of his <laughs> life. Um, so yeah, I think that, um, I really admire everybody in the business who just was able to hang in there for it. Um, let me think, oh, so um, can you tell us a story? There was one story, you've got, the book is sprinkled with really great stories. Um, so although I think um, its intent may have been more of a guide and a textbook, um, you certainly spiced it up with some great stories. Can you uh, tell books to viewers and listeners the Allen, two Allen stories? Oh, this was very funny. I, I had a, a pretty small kind of boutique type uh, company. Uh, it just so happened that I never re really worked on a big musical. There are much larger offices that have huge musicals and multiple shows running. I, I usually did one show at a time and then I was completely involved with it and, and you really got me um, rather than an associate. But there was one time where, by chance, the producers I worked with uh, wanted to produce a Broadway show and an off-Broadway show just a few weeks apart. One was uh, uh, a charming, almost one-man show off-Broadway starring Alan King about the um, film executive Samuel Goldwyn called Mr. Goldwyn. And the other was a really amazing Russian play by the playwright Ivan Turgenev that had never been produced in America and certainly not on Broadway called Fortune's Fool. It had start started in England 
and it starred Alan Bates. So uh, this was actually Turgenev's Broadway debut, debut that uh, <laughs> had been dead for God knows how long, and he's finally getting a Broadway debut. But Mr. Goldwyn starred Alan King, and uh, Fortune's Fool starred Alan Bates. And it was the same set of producers. And usually in the theater, once you find people you really trust and work well with, you use them over and over. So it was the same advertising agency and the same casting agent, and it was the same general manager. Most of the players were the same. And their schedules were about two weeks apart when they started rehearsal, when they had first preview, when they opened. They were very close. So it was a little confusing. So finally, to keep my sanity, I had to start every telephone conversation with, please identify the show we are talking about. Because <laughs> I didn't want to go like way down one road thinking I was talking about Mr. Goldwyn when we were really talking about Fortune's Fool. So did you start out the call by going, Bates or King, Bates or King? Exactly. Quick, 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 make it fast, make it fast. <laughs> Just want to make sure. So do you regret nev never having done a musical? They seem to be uh, in a different, a completely different world than regular stage plays as far as what you need to put one on? You know, it, it's very interesting. For many years, I kind of longed to break into the musicals. And then I finally got to a point where I thought, why would I, why would I want to do that? It's really, it's not terribly different. It's just 10 times more difficult. Instead of three dressers to worry about, I may have 16. And instead of one hair and makeup person, I may have 25. And and an orchestra. And, and then all these additional elements, like an orchestra, and a choreographer, and a conductor, and a musical director, and a copyist. And I thought, you know, just producing a high-quality Broadway play is plenty of work and uh, can be very stressful. A musical is just going to be that on steroids. Well, though now, uh, you somewhat do have experience with a musical, so why don't you <laughs> tell us about your recent musical experience? Well, I have vicarious, vicarious. experience. Um, our son, Jamie, uh, is a young actor who recently graduated from drama school in London and uh, was sent out on his first big audition by his agent. and unbelievably wound up being cast in the starring role in Moulin Rouge in London. He is a star of the West End for his first job. So, you know, if that had happened to you, there would be one less Broadway general manager, right? <laughs> <laughs> Things happen for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, since we're friends in Facebook, I've been on Facebook, I've been following um, your visit, you and Anna's visit to London, you're watching Jamie perform, then they had COVID, they had a COVID issue too, right? They shut down, the whole company had to shut down for, in fact, all the West End ultimately shut down in December right before Christmas, which is usually the, the most time. lucrative time of the year. So um, do you think that um, your background helped or didn't help or urged Jamie on in his pursuit of acting? I, I think the biggest difference was for many years I qualified as a Tony Award voter and whenever my wife didn't want to see a show I would bring Jamie so he saw an inordinate amount of 
Broadway shows. Uh, initially, mostly musicals, but as he got older, plays as well. And I'll, I'll never forget, uh, I, I general managed um, a revival of Eugene O'Neill's A Moon for the Misbegotten. And so I took my wife and our son to opening night. And Jamie had never seen a Eugene O'Neill play. And I don't know how well you know Moon for the Misbegotten, but it, it's quite sad. It's, it's sort of a ill-matched love affair between two people who don't wind up together at the end. And at the end of the play, when the curtain fell, Jamie turned to me shocked and he said, Dad, what, what, they're not gonna wind up together? And I said, no, son, I'm sorry. He said, oh, oh. He had no idea that this could happen in a play. Oh, he well, you know, it's probably a good lesson to be learned. Uh, if it does better it happens to somebody else <laughs> on the stage <laughs> than before it happens to you in real life, right? So um, that, I, I just think when Jamie told you what had happened, you must have been just completely knocked out because he probably wasn't expecting it, right? No, I mean, it was, it was such a, a long, long, uh, long shot, thank you. But he had many auditions over close to two months. So every time he got called back, it suddenly became a little realer and a little exciting. But when he finally got the call from his agent that he had the role, uh, he called us and he was with his girlfriend who took a video and that is so hilarious because he basically you see him talking on the phone and he says mom dad I, I, I just wanted to tell you I got the role <laughs> and you hear from my wife Anna and myself these like screams coming out of this telephone uh, Anna gets hysterical she like is cackling like an insane woman and I'm going like really really uh, are, are you kidding really and my wife is going <laughs> <laughs> so that is a great video. Well, um, I'm going to ask you to share it, but viewers and listeners, I'm not quite sure Peter will be willing to do that, but if, if you can send it to me, I'll include it, because that would be just great. <laughs> to say, just be, uh, I want to tell you guys, um, I booked Moulin Rouge. <laughs> For real? For real. Jamie last year when you were here and he came and watched us taping the show we went out for coffee together and Jamie said so you know we were talking about him uh, him getting the role and he said he was convinced that one of the reasons he got it was because he he couldn't get a decent haircut <laughs> in London while during COVID and his hair grew really long and it was very nice looking and he said, you know, I was like already, okay, I'm like, my hair's right for the part. So <laughs> I thought that was great that he said that. Um, so he, yes, that's, he, he attributes much to COVID. Well, you know, I, I talk about how people get breaks, right? You know. There's always some luck. I mean, there's talent, there's preparedness, but luck is a significant factor. He was very, very fortunate and he realizes it.
Well, um, I wish I wish him and and you both the best of luck. I know you're returning to London to see him when his contract is up, right? So that's in a couple months. Yeah, in mid October. We wanted to see the final performance, and then we talked and said, you know what? It's probably going to be so emotional. We better also see it a little bit earlier in the week. Oh, okay. So do you feel like you know it by heart by now? But and that's funny. Cause I could be a swing, Eileen. Uh -huh. And well, so you, could my wife. We could step in on a moment's Because when you think of it, Moulin Rouge, when you mentioned a moon for the misbegotten, and then there's Moulin Rouge, which is kind of pretty sad too, right? So. But, you know, they do something that is brilliant. It's a wonderful director, Alex Timbers. Um, and I've seen this with shows like Mamma Mia. Moulin Rouge really is a loose adaptation of La Traviata, the opera. It's basically tragic. I mean, the female lead is secretly dying of consumption, and uh, there's a misunderstanding, and she has to chase her true love away to save his life, but in the end, he comes back, but she winds up dying in his arms from consumption. So she dies at the end, which is very sad. But then the director adds on kind of a, a post-show with a lot of numbers, and by the time you leave that theater, you are like dancing and singing and feeling oh, that's great. that's such a strange ending for that story because that's like, yeah, well, but it's it, also Camille, right? It's also the story of Camille, same yeah, thing. And, and there's a little bit of La Boheme in there. Yeah, so I mean, you're, you're kind of supposed to be sad. That's really interesting. But they, they somehow wrap it up so that by the time the curtain finally falls, everyone's standing up and they're like going back and forth and they just feel great. You exit that theater feeling happy. You totally forget Satina's dead. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. But I'm afraid we have to wrap it up, speaking about wrapping up, and I'm sad that we're, we're wrapping up. So <laughs> I want to thank you so much, Peter, for coming back. Oh, thank um, you. I just, you know, I wish uh, we had more time to talk about it, but um, at least I think viewers and listeners will have a much better idea of the different roles and how critical a role a general manager plays in a production and even maybe it's a as it was to me it's a new idea that there even is such a thing as a Broadway general manager. Well thank you and I tried to include in the book uh, actual contracts and budgets which I analyzed so that if someone's really interested in in how theater works um, there is a treasure trove of information that's never been shared before. Yeah, no, and book. I didn't share it. I'm not a math person, so I kind of skipped right over that part. But, <laughs> but I, I did see that it was in the book. So thanks again Thank for, you. for revisiting Book Stew. And um, our next show, Book Stew viewers and listeners, will be another returning author. This author has been on Book Stew five times before. He's a very prolific writer in a, a number of different genres. It's Lamar Giles. And he'll be coming back on with another YA book for um, October. So we will see you then. Have a good night. Hey, that was a great show.